Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. I recently took part in two public debates on the question of whether war can ever be justified with Pete Kilner, professor of ethics from West Point Military Academy. David Barsamian's alternative radio recorded the first debate, and I'm airing half of that this week and half of it next week. The videos of both debates are at davidswanson.org. We begin with Pete Kilner. We have human rights, and the argument I'm going to make is that Based on our human rights, which give rise to our communal rights, we have rights also to defend ourselves against other countries. So war is justifiable when your political community, your country, has been attacked by an aggressor nation. Let me tell you quickly about kind of how I got into this position. I grew up probably pretty much on the militarist side of things, right? So there's Three broad groups, militarists who think war is kind of a good thing, a noble thing, mostly about national interests, they're not worried about ethics. Then you have pacifists who say war is a horrible thing and we should never do it. And then you have the middle ground, which I'm arguing for, which is saying war can be justifiable if you're on the defending side. So first, we do have a right that another human being not kill us. We do have a right that another human being not enslave us. Our right to free speech is the right that someone doesn't prevent us, coerce us from being able to speak our minds. So these core rights we all agree with, these are negative rights. These are claims against another person that says, you can't do something to me. There are other kinds of rights, positive rights. You have the right to health care. You have the right to income. Those are much more disputed because now you're saying not that someone should leave you alone. You're saying someone owes you something. But our country is based on, and the notion of human rights, traditionally, on these negative rights, the right not to be killed, not to be enslaved, the right to bodily integrity. Every human being has those by virtue of being a human being. But we also know that we can forfeit our rights. There's more than a million Americans in jail right now because they did something that forfeited their right to live freely in society. If you're walking home and someone attacks you, you just naturally know through natural law, you have the right to fight back. You'd almost be disregarding yourself if you didn't. And it's because everyone has a right, but we can forfeit our right. And when a human being threatens another human being who still possesses their right, that threatener forfeits their own right for the time during which they're a threat. And that's why if someone comes at you, you can fight back. And that's why other passerbys can come and help save you and do violence to that person because that person has forfeited their right not to be harmed because they're harming someone else. And we always want to think about it. The person who is creating that threat and that harm is the person during that time who forfeits their own right. Now, the other people, think about it. They don't have to stop and help you because their rights aren't being threatened. But they do it out of love for a fellow human being. I think almost everything in... Morality can be understood by three big principles. Respect other people, respect their human dignity, support the common good, and love one another, right? which is a more positive duty. So when those others come to help you, think how grateful you would be that through their love, they stopped you from being harmed. And I'll think about a police force. The police are people who say, we're not worried about just... What comes to us, anyone attacking us or attacking our family or something we see 
Our job is to try to prevent this behavior and to stop this behavior when we see it. The police protect us from threats inside of our political community. What the law, and based on morality, I think very well, says about when we can ever do harm to another person. Someone forfeits their right when they have the intent to do harm, the capability to do harm, and when the harm is imminent. Right? They can't be running away saying, I'm going to come back and get you later. It would be wrong to shoot them in the back. Right? Um, and so that's why for that police officer, if that police officer puts the gun on the criminal and the criminal puts up their hands, the police officer should not shoot. That's a statement that their intent is no longer threatening. So they, of course, they say drop the weapon, right? Because then when someone doesn't have a capability to do harm, um, you know, they're no longer a threat, and they regain their right not to be killed. We see the same thing in war at the individual level. Soldiers should never kill. As soon as an enemy soldier surrenders or an enemy soldier is wounded and incapacitated, it would be morally wrong to kill them. They're no longer a threat, and they regain their right not to be killed. Now, I'm guessing that my colleague here, my pastor's colleague, is agreeing with the right not to be killed at an individual level and the police officer level, and they say war isn't like that. Because war is, think about it. You know, I've been to war deployed five times. Any just war should be, by just war theory, a war of last resort. A just war is a necessary war, but it's a war that if you cede, if you just give up, you can't do anything more. And we always have the right to fight to defend our political community. When Germany attacked Poland, 1939, the Polish had the right to fight to try to defend their political community. When Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1990, the Kuwaitis had a right to fight back to defend their political community. Just like individuals have that right. So because a war is between these political communities, that's why you don't have to wait. I have to talk to soldiers about this. You don't have to be personally threatened. The war is between us and al-Qaeda. Okay? We, the, the chance for talking about peace is gone. The fight is on. When you get the chance, you should kill the enemy combatants, as long as they're still combatants. Take that back to the individual case. If someone attacks you when you're walking home tonight with a knife, and you're down on the ground, and that knife is coming towards your eyeball, it would be stupid for your knee to say, well, I'm not personally threatened. I'm not going to knee him in the groin. Right? No, because we're all one body, and our body has to work together. If any of us is threatened, all of us is threatened, we should all work together to end the threat. And that's how it is in war. Our political community, judged by our political leaders, they've said, we are so threatened that we have to fight. The other options aren't working. The military is the fist of the body politic. The whole rest of the body is going to suffer and die unless you fight. And that's what we do. Just like our fist does it for our own body if you get attacked tonight, the military does it for our own political community. Now, I wish the, right, the proper role in this political body is for the head to be very deliberative. And the head is our political leadership. And they should be trying to find any other way to fight. Right? In the military, our role is to win the war if our political leadership, elected by all of us, says that that's what we have to do. Oh, my own time. The thing that's missing right now, I think, within our polity is the civilian leadership and the civilian people understanding 
when war is just and saying we're only going to go to war when war is just. But still, I mean, I have an easy role in this argument. All I have to say is, can war be justifiable? Of course. When you are attacked, to defend yourself is justifiable. That can be a mental leap for us because no one's going to attack the United States anytime soon. We're pretty big, we're powerful, and we're protected by oceans. But I guarantee you that if United States forces were not physically present and willing to fight to defend Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, probably even Poland, Western Ukraine, Georgia, the parts that Russia hasn't already invaded, Russia would be using force to take those over. And sometimes it doesn't make sense to us. Like, why would they do that? Why don't we all just get along? There's always a minority of people throughout history, in all times, in all places, in all cultures, who won't just get along, who will violate the rights of others, violate the property rights. I've seen, I've been in Iraq, where there was lawlessness in 2003, when the government fell. And hey, this is your chance to all get along. This horrible dictator that was so bad to you is gone. And what did people do? They were just killing each other, right? There was massive theft. Why? Because some human beings will do bad things. And that's at the individual level, that's at the societal level, that's at the international level. And as long as you have evil in the world, you have to have some people who are willing to fight to defend against that evil. What we just heard was mostly theoretical about unnamed wars. I, I would have expected a long list of examples of the wars that have been justifiable. We heard Poland and we heard the Gulf War. Uh, last resorts, nothing else could have been done. They were just and humane and good wars. Iraq, before the Gulf War, was willing to negotiate a peaceful settlement. It proposed that Israel also withdraw from the Palestinian territories while Iraq withdrew from Kuwait. It proposed uh, a weapon, weapons of mass destruction free zone for the Middle East. And many governments of the world encouraged pursuing those negotiations. The United States' preference was for war. There is no such thing as war as a last resort. There is going out of your way to avoid peace. And as if we can talk about actual examples of wars, I would love to hear some examples of the ones that have been justified and of the ones that haven't been justified. And I would love to know how you quantify the difference, how you determine the good that's supposedly accomplished and how many deaths uh, are justified by that good. I would like to know how to quantify that. Uh, Pete wrote in the Washington Post in 2006 that people were blind to all the good that U.S. soldiers were doing and the war was doing for Iraq, a nation absolutely destroyed by that war. I want to know what that good was. What, regardless of whether the, the good outweighed the bad and the war was justified or not, I'd like to know that too. But what in the world was that good? The idea that wars are somehow self-defense and that this justifies wars. I mean, that argument has to go both ways. Both sides can claim it. But if only one side gets to claim it, well, it's not this one. It's Iraq. It's Afghanistan. It's Vietnam. It's the places attacked that can more plausibly make that claim. But it doesn't justify making war. Uh, it, you know, and justifying a soldier's actions within a war doesn't justify the decision to initiate a war. Uh, and, and a soldier is not 
a civilian with the right to self-defense, you know, a right that does not come because somebody else has forfeited their right. It comes most plausibly because it's actually a last resort, they, and it, because they have tried nonviolent approaches, which in an individual case can run out. It's not a good analogy to a war because the same does not apply. In war, most of the killing historically has happened while the other soldiers are retreating, including killing some 30,000 Iraqis in that good war, in that justifiable war, the Gulf War. Following an illegal order is not legal. An Iraqi village is not a threat to a drone pilot, and Iraq was never a threat to the United States. These are not facts. I'll try to answer all your questions. Some just wars. World War II, the I-4 intervention in Bosnia. If, you don't, if you're not familiar with Srebrenica, look it up. When UN troops were not willing to fight, 9,000 men got slaughtered. When the United States came in, the slaughter ended. We waited five years and 300,000 people had to die before we ended the slaughter by going in there with military force and the people will be forever grateful to us there in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Afghanistan, OIF-1. You know, they, all they had to do was turn over al-Qaeda. They decided to put in their, their bit with them a foreign government that sponsors people who have declared war on you and are killing your citizens has forfeited its right as a government, not the people. Um, bad wars, Grenada, bad war, Panama, bad war. 80s, I guess, wasn't a good decade. The notion that war is natural is frankly ridiculous. A great deal of conditioning is needed to prepare most people to take part in war, and a great deal of mental suffering, including higher suicide rates, is common among those who have taken part. In contrast, not a single person is known to have suffered deep moral regret or post-traumatic stress disorder from war deprivation. War does not correlate with population density or resource shortages. It is quite simply most used by those societies most accepting of it. The United States is high on and in some ways dominates the top of that list. Surveys have found the U.S. public among wealthy nations the most supportive of, quote, preemptively attacking other countries. Polls have also found that in the U.S., 44% of people claim they would fight in a war for their country, while in many other countries with equal or higher standard of living, that response is under 20%. U.S. culture is saturated with militarism, and the U.S. government is uniquely devoted to it, spending almost the same as the rest of the world combined, despite most of the other big spenders being close allies, whom the U.S. pushes to spend more. In fact, every other nation on Earth spends closer to the zero dollars spent by Costa Rica or Iceland than to the one trillion dollars spent by the United States. The U.S. maintains some 800 bases in other people's countries, while all other nations on Earth combined maintain a few dozen foreign bases. Since World War II, the U.S. has killed or helped kill some 20 million people, overthrown at least 36 governments, interfered in at least 84 foreign elections, attempted to assassinate over 50 foreign leaders, dropped bombs on people in over 30 countries. For the past 16 years, the U.S. has been systematically damaging a region of the globe, bombing Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Libya, Somalia, Yemen, and Syria. The U.S. has so-called special forces in two-thirds of the countries on Earth. When I watch a basketball game on TV, the announcers will thank the U.S. troops for watching from 175 countries. That's uniquely American. In 2016, a presidential primary debate question was, would you be willing to kill hundreds and thousands of innocent children? 
That doesn't happen in election debates in other countries where the other 96% of humanity lives. U.S. foreign policy journals discuss whether to attack North Korea or Iran. That's uniquely American. The publics of most countries polled in 2013 by Gallup called the U.S. the greatest threat to peace in the world. Pew found that viewpoint increased in 2017. So this country has an unusually strong investment in war, though it is far from the only war maker. But what would it take to have a justifiable war? According to just war theory, a war must meet several criteria, which I find fall into these three categories, the non-empirical, the amoral, and the impossible. By non-empirical, I mean things like right intention, a just cause, and proportionality. When your government says that blowing up a building where ISIS has stored money justifies killing up to 50 people, there is no agreed-upon empirical test to go out there and reply, no, it's only 49, or it's 6, or it's 4,097 people can be justly killed. Attaching some just cause to a war, such as ending slavery, never explains all the actual causes of a war and does nothing to justify the war. During a time when much of the globe ended slavery and serfdom without a war, claiming that as the cause for a war carries no weight. By amoral criteria, I mean things like being publicly declared and being waged by legitimate and competent authorities. These are not moral concerns. Even in a world where we actually had competent uh, and legitimate authorities, they wouldn't make a war any more or less just. Does anyone really picture a family in Yemen hiding from a constantly buzzing drone being thankful that it's been sent to them by a competent and legitimate authority? By impossible, I mean things like be a last resort, have a reasonable prospect of success, keep non-combatants immune from attack, Respect enemy soldiers as human beings. Treat prisoners of war as non-combatants. To call something a last resort is in reality merely to claim it is the best idea you have, not the only idea you have. There are always other ideas that anyone can think of, even if you're in the role of the Afghans or the Iraqis actually being attacked. Studies like those of Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan have found nonviolent resistance to domestic and even foreign tyranny to be twice as likely to succeed and those successes to be far longer lasting. We can look to successes, some partial, some complete, against foreign invasions over the years, Nazi-occupied Denmark and Norway, in India, in Palestine, Western Sahara, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Ukraine, etc., and many dozens of successes against regimes that in many cases have had foreign support. My hope is that the more that people learn the tools of nonviolence and their power, the more they will believe in and choose to make use of that power, which will increase the power of nonviolence in a virtuous cycle. But continuing with the impossible criteria, what about respecting a person while trying to kill her or him? There are lots of ways to respect a person but none of them exist simultaneously with trying to kill that person. In fact, I would rank right at the bottom of people who respect me, people who are trying to kill me. Remember, just war theory was created by people who believed that killing someone was doing them a favor. And non-combatants are the majority of casualties in modern wars, overwhelmingly, so they cannot be kept safe. And there is no reasonable prospect of success available. The U.S. military is on an enormous, record-breaking losing streak. But the biggest reason that no war can ever be justified is not that no war can ever meet all the criteria of just war theory, but rather that war is not an incident. 
It is an institution. Many people in the U.S. will concede that many U.S. wars have been unjust, but claim justness for World War II or Bosnia or a couple others. Others claim no just wars yet, but join the masses in supposing that there might be a justifiable war someday. It is that supposition, far more than any wars, that kill people. The U.S. government spends over a trillion dollars on war and war preparations each year, while 3% of that could end starvation, and 1% of it end the lack of clean drinking water globally. The military budget is the only place with the resources needed to try to save the Earth's climate. Far more lives are lost and damaged through the failure to spend money well than through the violence of war. And more are lost or put at risk through side effects of that violence than directly. War and war preparations are the biggest destroyer of the natural environment. Most countries on Earth burn less fossil fuels than does the U.S. military. Most Superfund disaster sites even in this country are at military bases. The institution of war is the biggest eroder of our liberties, even when the wars are marketed under the word freedom. This institution impoverishes us, threatens the rule of law, degrades our culture by fueling violence, bigotry, the militarization of police, and mass surveillance. This institution puts us all at risk of nuclear disaster, and it endangers rather than protects those societies that engage in it. According to the Washington Post, President Trump asked Secretary of so-called Defense James Mattis why he should send troops to Afghanistan, and Mattis said, to prevent a bomb in Times Square. Yet the man who tried to set off a bomb in Times Square seven years ago said it was to get the U.S. troops out of Afghanistan. For North Korea to try to occupy the United States would require a force many times larger than the North Korean military. For North Korea to attack the United States, were it actually capable, would be suicide. Could it happen? Well, look at what the CIA said before the U.S. attacked Iraq. Iraq would be most likely to use its weapons only if attacked. Apart from the non-existence of those weapons, that was accurate. Terrorism has predictably increased during the war on terrorism, as measured by the Global Terrorism Index. 99.5% of terrorist attacks occur in countries engaged in wars and or abuses such as imprisonment without trial, torture, or lawless killing. The highest rates of terrorism are in so-called liberated and democratized Iraq and Afghanistan. The terrorist groups responsible for the most terrorism, that is, non-state, politically motivated violence, around the world have grown out of U.S. wars against terrorism. Those wars themselves have caused numerous just-retired top U.S. government officials and a few U.S. government reports to describe military violence as counterproductive, as creating more enemies than are killed. 95% of all suicide terrorist attacks are conducted to encourage foreign occupiers to get out of the terrorists' home country. And an FBI study in 2012 said that anger over U.S. military operations abroad was the most commonly cited motivation for individuals involved in cases of so-called homegrown terrorism in the U.S. These facts lead me to three conclusions. One, Foreign terrorism in the United States could be virtually eliminated by keeping the U.S. military out of any country that is not the United States. Two, if Canada wanted anti-Canadian terrorist networks on a U.S. scale or just wanted to get threatened by North Korea, it would need to radically increase its bombings, occupying, and base construction around the world. Three, on the model of the war on terrorism, 
the war on drugs that produces more drugs, the war on poverty that seems to increase poverty, we would be wise to consider launching a war on sustainable prosperity and happiness. For a war on North Korea to be justifiable, for example, the U.S. would have to have not gone to such efforts over the years to avoid peace and provoke conflict. It would have to be innocently attacked. It would have to lose the ability to think so that no alternatives could be considered. It would have to redefine success to include a scenario in which a nuclear winter might cause much of the earth to lose the ability to grow crops or eat. By the way, Keith Payne, a drafter of the new Nuclear Posture Review back in 1980, parodying Dr. Strangelove, defined success to allow 20 million Americans dead and unlimited non-Americans dead. It would also have to invent bombs that spare non-combatants. It would have to devise a means of respecting people while killing them. And in addition, this remarkable war would have to do so much good as to outweigh all the damage done by decades of preparing for such a war, all the economic damage, political damage, damage to the Earth's land, water, and climate, all the deaths by starvation and disease that could have been so easily spared, plus all the horrors of all the unjust wars that were facilitated by the preparations for the dreamed-of just war, plus the risk of nuclear apocalypse created by the institution of war. No war can meet such standards. So-called humanitarian wars, which is what Hitler called his invasion of Poland and NATO called its invasion of Libya, do not, of course, measure up to just war theory, but neither do they benefit humanity. What the U.S. and Saudi militaries are doing to Yemen is the worst humanitarian disaster in years. The U.S. sells or gives weapons to 73% of the world's dictators and gives military training to many of them. Studies have found that there is no correlation between the severity of human rights abuses in a country and the likelihood of Western invasion of that country. But other studies have found that oil-importing countries are 100 times more likely to intervene in civil wars of oil-exporting countries. And in fact, the more oil a country produces or owns, the higher the likelihood of third-party interventions. The U.S., like any other war maker, has to work hard to avoid peace. The U.S. has spent years rejecting out-of-hand peace negotiations for Syria. In 2011, so that NATO could begin bombing Libya, the African Union was prevented by NATO from presenting a peace plan to Libya. In 2003, Iraq was open to unlimited inspections or even the departure of its president, according to numerous sources, including the president of Spain, to whom U.S. President Bush recounted Hussein's offer to leave. In 2001, Afghanistan was open to turning Osama bin Laden over to a third country for trial. In 1999, the U.S. State Department deliberately set the bar too high, according to members of the U.S. State Department, insisting on NATO's right to occupy all of Yugoslavia so that Serbia wouldn't agree and would therefore supposedly need to be bombed. Go back through history. The United States sabotaged peace proposals for Vietnam. The Soviet Union proposed peace negotiations before the Korean War. Spain wanted the sinking of the USS Maine to go to international arbitration before the Spanish-American War. Mexico was willing to negotiate the sale of its northern half. In each case, the U.S. preferred war. Peace would not seem so difficult if people stopped going to such efforts to avoid it, like Mike Pence in a room with a woman from North Korea trying not to indicate awareness of her presence. And if we stopped letting them scare us, fear can make lies and simplistic thinking believable. We need courage. 
We need to lose this fantasy of total safety that drives us to create ever greater danger. And if the United States had a democracy, rather than bombing people in the name of democracy, I wouldn't have to convince you all of a thing. The US public already favors military reductions and greater use of diplomacy. Such moves would stimulate a reverse arms race, and that would open more eyes to the possibility of advancing further in that direction, the direction of what is required by morality, what is necessary for the habitability of our planet, what we must pursue if we are to survive, the complete abolition of the institution of war. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.